the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Hi, it's Hugh Hewitt. Welcome to the interview with Hugh Hewitt, sponsored by AndrewandTodd.com. Andrew and Todd are with Sierra Pacific Mortgage. They help you with all your real estate lending needs. If you're refinancing your home, if you're buying a new home, if you're a senior who wants a reverse mortgage, if you're a veteran who doesn't want to put any money down, whatever it is, if you're in the private real estate market for yourself, and maybe you want an investment property, try AndrewandTodd.com or call 888-888-1172. Now on to the interview with Hugh Hewitt. Welcome back, America. I'm Hugh Hewitt. Last uh, week, two weeks ago, before I went on vacation, I talked to Arthur Brooks about his book on finding purpose in the third third of life. Fortuitously, another book arrived, HBR Guide to Crafting Your Purpose. It's in my hand right now. It's by John Coleman, who joins me now. The HBR stands for Harvard Business Review. John is a very successful author and investor. Good morning, John. Welcome back to the Hugh Hewitt Show. Hi, Hugh. Thanks so much for having me on. All right. Tell people about this little red book, HBR Guide. First of all, they got to know that the Harvard Business Review is read by every C-suite executive who's serious in America. What is this set of guides and, and what is this book about? Yeah, HBR just has a set of guides on common management and leadership topics so that people can dive into them quickly and take practical action. And I started writing for them about a decade ago. I actually wrote a book called Passion and Purpose uh, coming out of the great financial crisis about next generation leadership. And that got me thinking about the topic of purpose uh, and writing about it for the next five or six years at HBR. And we turned several of those articles into a practical guide on the subject. Do you know Arthur's class at HBS is the highest attended class at HBS, and it's all about purpose. So obviously he's talking to young people, and you're hitting people who've already left business school or in the world with the HBR Guide to Crafting Your Purpose. How long did it take to do? Yeah, so I've been writing about the topic for most of the last decade. You know, it really originated when I got my very first question on passion and purpose, uh, almost 11 years ago now from a young lady at my first book event, she asked, how do I find my purpose? Which was the most obvious question I could have been asked. And I remember I didn't have a great answer to that question. And so I started thinking about it in in a great deal of depth, studying the topic of purpose and thinking about the fact that I actually thought that question was so hard to answer because in some ways it was, it was the wrong question. It contained misconceptions about purpose Um, And this book is an attempt to both outline the importance of people achieving meaning and purpose in their lives and also the ways in which we fundamentally misunderstand that topic and how those misconceptions can hold us back. You know, John, if you're a Catholic of a certain age and I am, you grew up with the Baltimore Catechism. The first question of which is, what is your purpose? It's to know, love and serve God. I don't I don't know if there's any religion in this book yet. I have only read the uh, the, the letter, your five most important relationships and the acronym. But what is your background? How do you come to this? tell people who you are? Because obviously HBR is a heck of a brand. But what about John Coleman? Yeah, absolutely. So 
Um, I grew up in Columbus, Georgia. For the most part, I was born in Florida and Georgia, grew up with a pretty middle class family. When I was born, my dad was actually a rodeo cowboy. Uh, really? Rode horses and uh, he was a bull rider and uh, born in a trailer park in central Florida and then um, grew up kind of middle class as my my parents achieved the American dream. I went to a small college in Georgia. Uh, faith is really important to me, Hugh. Uh, so I'm a Christian and a lot of my uh, desire to achieve purpose and meaning is is the belief that there is a higher power and that I have a greater mission on this earth and something greater to serve than myself. And um, I find that that's a common refrain. You know, as we look to the people I interviewed for the book and as we lay out principles, obviously this is written for a very broad audience. Uh, but you found that a lot of the folks that we spoke to were religious believers who felt motivated by something greater than self. And in fact, when I lay out what I think are kind of the six most important areas in which you can achieve purpose, uh, religion or some sort of philosophic tradition is is one of those six, because I think it's absolutely critical as a foundation for understanding the world and for motivating all of the other things that you do. That brings us to the acronym LABORS, and I want to get it in before we go to break, and we're going to continue the conversation and make it the uh, the long podcast today. But would you run down the LABORS framework? Yeah, so LABORS is just a word I put together to cover the six areas in which I encourage people to look for purpose. One of the three misconceptions we cover is that purpose is a single thing, uh, something that should guide your whole life. And I, I instead think that each of us is surrounded by purpose and meaning every day. It's just identifying that and uh, living into that and trying to develop it further. And so the laborers framework is L-A-B-O-R-S. Uh, the L stands for love. Uh, all of the social science research would show you that the primary determinant of whether you have a happy and flourishing life is the depth and breadth of your positive relationships. And so love is central to that. The A is for avocations or self-improvement. So basically hobbies, things outside of work that keep you busy. Some of those could be really meaningful. Uh, some people pursue side businesses. Some people set up charitable foundations. Uh, it could also be something where you just practice craft or improve yourself, like running a marathon or joining a knitting group and can often be a source of community. The B uh, for me is beauty. I think this is neglected by a lot of folks who work uh, too much or who are in office environments too much. The ability to get out into nature, to achieve, uh, to experience beauty, to go to museums, uh, to watch great plays or ballet. We get uh, purpose from experiencing beauty in our lives. And we you know, John, we, we got to go to break. And we will. I, I, it never ceases to amaze me that at the National Gallery, which is free, you can always walk into the Rembrandt room and there's nobody there. And there are a dozen Rembrandts on the mall in Washington and nobody is ever there. Uh, and I'm always amazed. The greatest painter to ever lived and no one is ever in there looking at him. The HBR Guide to Crafting Your Purpose by John Coleman. I will tweet it out. Go and get it. He'll be back for more after the break on the extended the interview with Hugh Hewitt. Don't go anywhere, America. I'll be back tomorrow on the next Hugh Hewitt show. I'm back now with John Coleman, author of the HBR Guide to Crafting Your Purpose. If you just picked this up, we were talking about what the acronym LABOR stands for. L is for love. A is for avocations. B is for beauty. But there are three more parts of the acronym, John Coleman. Please pick it up on the HBR Guide to Crafting Your Purpose. It's a nice one-page summary. Yeah, thank you. So the O is for occupation. Of course, this is central, and we can circle back to that. But what you do professionally in your life, that eats up about a third to half of your time, uh, frankly. And so it's incredibly important that your work have meaning. 
R is for religion or philosophy. And so, Hugh, to our prior question, I think it's important that people explore uh, the religious or philosophic foundation of their lives and understand it. And then S is for service. And uh, again, just like love is one of those things that everyone finds is important to joy and to happiness, uh, service to others is really central to achieving meaning in your life. Uh, service to others is everything. Hey, to me, you do as much as you can for as many as you can for as long as you can, and you'll be fine. But you've got Dan's matrix of relationships. That's the second of three pages I want to go to. Explain that to people. The uh, the matrix of different relationships in your life. Yeah. So um, I think that that uh, and I think you're talking about service. I call it kind of the four C two P approach to service. If that's what you're referencing. No, I'm I'm talking and about table five two. Dan's relationship ma- matrix: wife, son, boss, Jim, Sam. Oh, gotcha. Yeah. And that's just a way of thinking through the relationships that you have in your life, basically sitting down and trying to articulate who are the important relationships in my life. And that's an example from uh, a person uh, called Dan in the book where you try and articulate because most of us just don't think about the meaning that we get from relationships. Who are the five or six people that are important to me at work professionally and the relationships I need to be positive there? Uh, Who are the folks at home, whether that be your spouse or your kids there are absolutely essential relationships. And then who are the folks outside of that, whether that's extended family or friends or people that you serve with in the community and trying to become more conscious about uh, what the status of your relationship is with them, how to improve it, how to repair it if it's gone wrong, um, and then coming up with thoughtful and pragmatic ways to invest in that. And so I know as a husband and father, that's something I try and do at home pretty frequently is think consciously about uh, how my kids and my wife are experiencing my time right now. And, um, but I find that most people don't really sit down to think through all the meaningful relationships in their lives and articulate how, how they could improve those or live into those more fully. Now, John Coleman, let's go to the heart of this, which is your job. Uh, and because it's a Harvard Business Review book, I'm not surprised that it focuses on what you do, uh, whatever your occupation is. Now, I have always loved my jobs. I've never had one. I'm interested in your view on that. I've always had four or five, and I continue to have four or five. And I I think having a multi-platform career is probably the best way to make sure you're never unhappy all the time and you're at least happy about something. But a lot of people hate their work, right? My first advice to anyone who hates their their work is quit. What's yours? (laughs) The uh, Well, Hugh, I think you were ahead of the curve. Most people are catching up to you now with multi-platform jobs and certainly having a diversity of professional interests is, is new. You know, when people do hate their work, I actually encourage them before they quit. And I just wrote an article for HBR on leaving your job um, to really think hard about whether the problem is internal or external for the reason they're feeling about their work right now. You know, um, the, the great shame would be to go through all the disruption of quitting a job or a career only to find out when you get to your new job or career that you didn't actually fix any of the things that were wrong because those were internal. And so I always encourage people to think carefully about crafting their job and whether there are ways in which they can achieve greater meaning in their job that they just haven't tried out yet um, before they leave. And I think that prevents you from uh, joining the great resignation or quitting your job and finding out on the other side that, uh, that it wasn't the right move. I, I saw a statistic recently that with the great resignation, approximately 70 percent of people now regret their decision to leave uh, their prior employment. And that's why I think it's care- it's important that people think carefully about that decision and diagnose why they're unhappy or unfulfilled or unengaged in their job before making a switch. Now, John, 30 years ago, and it is 30 years ago this year, 
I, I had joined a law firm out of the government. I love being in the government. I thought it was great. But I had to join a law firm, and I did. And the law firm was okay, but it wasn't great. So a bunch of us about my age got together, and 12 of us left. And we built a great law firm because we had the courage. And we didn't make any money for three months, and it was you know touch and go there until the receipts come in. If you're a lawyer, you can only bill your time, right? So you got to get the, the AR accumulated and then paid. But I got to tell you, best decision in the, t- in the world I ever made was leaving the firm that wasn't perfect. The other side is staying with Salem for 21 years. No company is perfect, but this is pretty perfect. I don't know anybody who leaves radio once they get into it. So it's all about at the beginning, you know, cut your losses, sunk costs, get into what you want to do or make what you want to do. Don't stick around in a situation that's toxic. Yeah, I think that's right. And, you know, uh, if if the proof is in the pudding, I actually left my job and joined a new firm in the midst of writing this book. I got really convicted about what would give me a greater source of meaning. Like you, I left a larger firm and, and helped to build a smaller firm uh, where I am now. So something more entrepreneurial. Um, and I think that's exactly right. You know, if you've done the self-reflection and you know why you're unhappy and disengaged, I think that you need to cleanly let go of things and and embark on something that can give you true fulfillment. And there's no better time than the present if you want to do that. And I do think that people sometimes hang on too long. And then once you're in a new career, one thing I, I bet that we'd find if I talked to you about it, Hugh, is over the course of that 21 years at Salem, you've reinvented your job and you've really crafted it in different ways over time, tweaking what you're doing, shifting some of your responsibilities, thinking about it differently, which is a way to keep refreshed and re-energized in something when you've dug into it for a long time and and, uh, you're trying to avoid being stagnant. You know, you bring me to page 59 of the book, The HBR Guide to Crafting Your Purpose. By the way, John, on every interview, you have to say the title of the book seven times, The HBR Guide to Crafting Your Purpose, The HBR Guide to Crafting Your Purpose. That's a Frank Luntz role. Uh, Page 54, Four ways to shape purpose. Craft your work, connect work to service, make work a craft, invest in positive relationships. Number four is pretty intuitive. The other three are not. So go through the top three of the diamond. Yeah, so craft your work is uh, this idea of job crafting, which is now in the management literature. And that's taking the job you have and making it the job you want. So finding small ways in which to tweak your responsibilities so that you transform the work that you already have into something you find more fulfilling. And we could go through examples of that. Making work a craft for me is restoring this sense of craft and uh, professional pursuit to each of our jobs. So um, just as uh, uh, you know, cobblers would perfect their craft or old, old craftsmen um, that we're used to encountering would perfect their craft, I think there's opportunity for that kind of perfection and focus and professionalism in any job. And that art of craft helps you to feel greater purpose and meaning in your work. And then connecting your work to service is about identifying all of the different opportunities to serve others in your day job. Um, I articulate six in the book that we have a little framework for, but I actually think there are dozens of people that almost anyone could be serving in their day jobs every day and learning to identify those and really lean into that service and understand it better is critical to achieving satisfaction in your life. John Coleman, I want to go through those six as a good way to put a, a, a line under this. But I will tell you uh, back when I wrote in, but not up, and that's 20 years ago. I said, know everyone from the parking garage to your desk. 
know every single person along the way. I Because they're all part of your life. And if you don't know the guy who's taking your ticket at the parking garage, you're passing by someone every single day that you really ought to know and understand what their life is about. What are your six? Yeah, so I, I think of it as four C's and two P's, uh, just to give it a, a bit of a framework. The first that we serve all the time are clients or customers. And I think for a business person in particular, that's always the core focus of your work is how do you really serve your clients and customers better? The second to me is colleagues. So cue to your point about knowing everyone within the office or the organization, you know, there are people uh, with needs. There are people who need encouragement every day that you work with and leaning into investing in your colleagues is critically important for their meaning and for yours. Uh, I think there's an opportunity for community. Uh, so how does your business engage in the communities in which you work? How does it give back? Uh, how does it help others? How does it even work with the surrounding businesses or uh, community organizations to really invest? And then capital uh, is the fourth C. And that's an unusual one, but it's thinking about what shareholders you're serving. You know, for many people, this is impersonal. But even if you look at the shareholders of a public company, that's often the 401k plans of retirees or teacher pensions, et cetera. And so you can feel pretty good about the work that you're doing and where it goes. And then the two P's for me are partners. Uh, so that's any organization. It can be vendors. It could be organizations that you work with where there are people you can serve. And then the final is people you love. And, you know, I believe that all work has dignity. I think that that's essential to human development. And all of us are supporting someone, a family, friends with the money that we earn. And so we can feel great about the work we're doing and the way we're supporting others in that work. I am curious. I, I, I say we have five fingers. Remember, we're supposed to give money to church, to a parachurch organization like Young Life to an educational institution that you attended, to an educational institution that's just doing good, and then to a charity that supports military veterans. That's how I remember to give money. In your research on people with purpose, are they generous? Yeah, absolutely. They're generous, not just with their money, but with their time. And I think that's essential. You know, I, I think both of those are necessary. And so you find that overall, those who are achieving greater life satisfaction are giving more. And Arthur Brooks, who you mentioned earlier, has actually written on the topic of charity in the past, uh, even extending decades ago when he first started writing. And I think you find that. But you also find that the most fulfilled people aren't just giving money in a dispassionate way, but they're trying to involve themselves personally in those works of service. And so they may give money to an organization, but also serve in it. And then uh, it often extends beyond like board service or something like that to actually serving in a soup kitchen, volunteering to uh, help out a children's hospital, really getting yourself in touch with the people that you're serving. And so I think balancing those two things is, is common for those. And folks. finding an entry point like Knights of Columbus is a great way to do it, because then you just don't go in and knock at the door. I, I want to close by talking a little bit, John, about what do you actually hope to achieve with this? I mean, if someone reads the HBR Guide to Crafting Your Purpose what do you think the difference will be in your reader at the end? I think that everyone in the world uh, is capable of finding purpose in their life and that everyone's here for a reason. And I think that everyone's life is important. And if you look at the world today, you know, so many people are unhappy. They're lonely. They're isolated. They're feeling lost. Opioid deaths are at an all time high. A disengagement is an all time high. Stats on loneliness amongst elderly people and college students are high. And I, I just feel a, a deep sense of pain about that. And I want people to achieve the purpose that I think can be a part of their life and to really experience flourishing in a way that I don't think people are today. And so my key message to folks and the reason that I wrote the book is that you have agency. 
you do have purpose and meaning in your life. You just have to learn to craft it, to shape it in your life. And my hope for everyone is that they can achieve a greater sense of flourishing and happiness as a result of that, because their lives are, are incredibly important. And for a religious person, I believe everyone's created in the image of God and that they have dignity. And I hope that, that everyone begins to realize that. Bonus round, John Coleman, uh, social media. Now, I have to use Twitter for professional reasons. If I'm going on with Brett Baer on Special Report, I let people know and I post links and I'll post the link to your book. And I use Twitter for that purpose. I don't do Facebook. I don't spend time. But the fetching Mrs. Hewitt loves Facebook because her community on Facebook is like 50 people and she loves staying in touch with them. What do you think social media is doing to purpose? Because I have there's a good story here and there's a bad story here. You know, Hugh, I, I think social media is a very mixed bag, honestly. I think that um, on the on the plus side, it does allow you to connect with others. I found meaningful connections um, through Facebook or LinkedIn with others. You can use LinkedIn for professional purposes and being able to build community across geographies is a good thing, I think, particularly during the pandemic. I think the danger of social media is that... Um, I think it, it animates people into greater disagreement and argument. I think it amplifies the negative um, aspects of a person's character. They feel anonymous. They attack one another more. It heightens tribalism. I also think it makes us uh, more dissatisfied with our lives. People often post only their greatest things to social media. Uh, the images that especially young people see on things like Instagram or Facebook are often of, of lives that are made up effectively, lives that are not real. And they set an unrealistic expectation for people that actually creates disillusionment and angst about their ability to achieve a similar life and a feeling that if they don't post something similar, if they don't get the same amount of likes as someone else, that they don't have worth. And so I worry a lot about the standards that social media is setting for people, the dissatisfaction that it can cause and really the division that it can cause. So I'm not a super active user. I do have to use it for uh, the book and for my writing. Um, but I also think that people would be well served to make sure they're living in real life as well as on social media and reconnecting with people in person. Second bonus round, John Coleman. Um, I tell young people, especially every life has a best year and a worst year. Every year has a best week and a worst week. Every week has a best day and a worst day. And every day has a best hour and a worst hour. You've just got to be ready at any time in your life to realize there's just bad stuff ahead. There's, there just is. And if you have a curated life and all you see is curated life, that's what made me think of it. Curated lives on Instagram, curated lives on Facebook. You're going to be not prepared. Uh, the the old Catholic education was prepare for the suffering. It's coming. I mean, it's a good message for people to know. Yeah, that's right. And, you know, the other part about that, and we went through some hard times over the last couple of years, my wife and family and I. And, um, you know, we, we got great messages of sympathy on social media. But a, a good reminder for us were the friends who actually stopped by in person, those who were bringing us dinners, those who came over to help us with the kids. And um, the curated life is is not a complete life. Right. Uh, the complete life and the ability to withstand that suffering uh, is also surrounding yourself with a community who can invest in you and in whom you invest and us experiencing that suffering personally and building resilience and then experiencing it as a community and building relationships from that. I think is an essential part of growth and us becoming the types of mature people who can not only withstand suffering in the future and endure it, but also help others who are suffering and connect with them. Resilience is everything and suffering is not bad. 
it's awful, but it's not bad for you. I want to close by asking you the best piece of advice you've either heard or given. And I'll go first because uh, I interviewed Rabbi Harold Kushner back in 1995 for a PBS series called Searching for God in America. Never been taught. When people are hurting, show up and shut up. In other words, show up, mow the lawn, bring the groceries, wash the car, uh, sit in the front room. Shut up. Don't tell them the bad parts of your life. Don't try and sympathize by empathy, which is actually disguised attention getting. Show up and shut up is the most concise, best advice I've ever heard. What's your nominee, John? That's awesome, Hugh. I had a great friend uh, tell me, you know, the secret of life is work hard and show up on time uh, at one point. And I thought that was pretty simple. But so I don't rip you off entirely. I'll say um, the other best piece of advice I got was never fake it until you make it right. There's ah. there's this sense that you got to kind of pretend your way to uh, success in something. And instead, you know, I think it's better to ask questions, to cultivate a sense of curiosity and to really allow yourself to explore and understand things rather than trying to uh, present a facade of knowing how to do something before you actually learn it. John, a bonus bit of advice. The three hardest words to say and the most effective is, I don't know. Because if people will say, yeah. I don't know, they don't end up in a lot of trouble when someone says, what about this? I don't know. That's the easiest thing to say. I don't know what's in this book, but I know you ought to read it. Uh, John, congratulations on the HBR Guide to Crafting Your Purpose. I hope it's everywhere it's going to be. I'm going to tweet it out. Harvard Business Review Press is really getting into this, and I'm glad to see that you're making your way in the world that way. I'll see you somewhere in Georgia coming up. Thank you so much, Hugh. I appreciate the time. John Coleman, the author of the HBR, that would mean Harvard Business Review, Guide to Crafting Your Purpose. Go and get it today. I'll tweet out the link. Thank you all for listening to the interview with Hugh Hewitt. That concludes today's episode of the interview with Hugh Hewitt. Thank you for listening. Make sure you come back and check out all the other podcasts on the Salem Podcast Network. And remember to thank our sponsors, andrewandtodd.com. If you believe in long-form interviews like I do, then do your real estate transactions with Andrew Del Rey and Todd Avakian. I've known both men for a long time. AndrewandTodd.com. Go there, answer a couple of questions. They'll tell you what's best to do with your house or call them at 888-888-1172. You'll be glad you did and you'll be glad that you listened to the next episode of The Interview. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.